Listener Production. We can look back and go, well, we probably could have done things better. We're all passionate environment people. We understand that what's here today, we want here again for tomorrow. G'day, I'm Scott Phillips, the Motley Fool's Chief Investment Officer, and welcome to The Good Oil. Now, if you're not familiar with the phrase, giving someone the good oil is giving them the good stuff, the important stuff, and the real stuff. We tell you that every time we have this episode, but it's important because that's the aim of our podcast. We bring you conversations with entrepreneurs, executives, and experts, the people who know what's going on and the people who make things happen. Now, today's guest is about one third each of those. I think he's part entrepreneur, part executive, and part expert, not only in his current life, but in his former life. We are gonna learn a lot about the business of commodities, agricultural commodities trading in particular, with today's guest, who is a farmer and commodities trader, Simon McDougall. Simon, welcome to The Good Oil. G'day, Scott. Thank you for having me. Mate, it's an absolute pleasure. I One of the great things about Twitter is you get to interact with people who you otherwise wouldn't meet in, in general life. And you and I have kind of corresponded back and forth on Twitter a couple of times. I've seen your stuff, you've seen my stuff. And I just figured, we've had Martin Cutterhe on, on the podcast. If people listen to previous episodes, he's a uh, former journo and, and now uh, station owner and, and uh, someone who's running cattle up in uh, central Queensland. We don't spend anywhere near enough time on this podcast or in general, talking about the things that actually put, well, food on the plate, frankly, the the rest of the country. We kind of think of ourselves as, uh, you know, bushies and outback people and we mythologize and, and love the outback, but we don't actually hear enough about it. And so, Simon, when you and I kind of corresponded on Twitter, I kind of thought, you know what? This is what you do for a quid. I reckon our listeners would love to hear a bit more from you. Now, normally I say, so what's going on right now? But we'll get to that. The The... What I want to start with, mate, because you and I have kind of chatted briefly before this podcast, and as I said, mate, how do you how do you end up uh, living where you live and doing what you do? So, firstly, mate, tell us where you're coming from right now, where you are, and and what's around you, and then tell us how you got to be where you are. I suppose, firstly, uh, I reside uh, so I'm in northwestern New South Wales in a in a town called Tamworth, the country music capital of uh, of Australia. Um, so yeah, look, Indeed. I've uh, I, I would class myself as a as a local to Tamworth now. I've been here twenty years, uh, and uh, with my wife and and small young family. Um, but yeah, I mean, look, uh, Tamworth really came came out of nowhere for me. So I was a, a Sydney boy. Um, so I went to school in Sydney, grew up in in Western Sydney. Started my career in banking and finance in Circular Key. I suppose had that city life and that suit and tie sort of start to my career. And it wasn't, it was just by chance. I was, you know, in the early 2000s, I was, I was, you know, I had a, I had a fair bit of annual leave up my sleeve and I was Googling and I came across a um, Jackaroo school um, that was based out of Tamworth. And and that is the, um, I suppose, the first step that got me up to the bush and, and try the country life. 
Chakarusko, mate, of all the things when you're Googling, uh, I imagine there was a plenty of things you could have been doing with your life. You could have gone for a sabbatical to Bali or backpack through Europe or... I don't, I don't know. I've got, I got to say, I, I am I am jealous, mate. I wish I'd done some of that stuff. I, I try and get out back, as most of our listeners know, and certainly if you follow me on the socials, every now and again I kind of disappear for two or three weeks and go bush. Um, not, not super bush, but, you know, head, head to the outback and see a bit of the rest of the country. Um, how, how does Jackaroo School, of all of the options, grab your attention? And, and how do you go from that to, like, you know, that's actually what I'm going to do. Oh, mate, it just, it, it was the most random thing. Uh, I suppose I'd always had a bit of an interest in, in horses and horse riding. And look, I just had time and and I suppose I had a I had a blank notebook, so to speak. Um, so I was happy to just give something a go. Um, so I suppose just in preparation for, for my uh, venture uh, into the world of jackarooing, I, I embarked on on some horse riding lessons and actually I bet, I bet. <laughs> uh, got, so I sort of cut my teeth uh, in, with horse riding at Centennial Park in, in Sydney. Um, so lots of um, round and round the arena there and I had a uh, a pretty handy uh, rising trot and collected canter, um, which uh, which all went out the window once I went to the Jackaroo <laughs> School. <laughs> <laughs> How was that as a learning curve, mate? Tell us, tell uh, you, you rock up at, at, at Jackaroo School. Are you the only bush kid there, or uh, sorry, city kid there, or or is it kind of a, a lot of people? How, how did that go? No, like just as a bit of a background. So it was a tourist sort of farm, and it was designed for. Um, I, I didn't realise this at the time, but it was largely designed for backpackers. So, um, so your English, you know, European um, mid twenties backpacker would come to the Jackaroo School, spend a week learn some basic bush skills and then that would be i suppose a pathway for them to go and find uh you know basic jobs in the bush au pair um they could you know work on horse properties and and so forth so i i turned up um with with very uh i i had no idea it was going to be like that i thought it was going to be more a a blokey sort of environment that's what Um, i'd be expecting yeah yeah so I was pleasantly surprised when I turned up and there was another 15 uh, and probably mostly female uh, backpackers. Uh, I thought, oh, this is, this is all right. 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 Um, so, look, I, I went through the school, but for me it was just an experience. Um, but I very quickly came back to Sydney and uh, sat down with my boss at the time who was wonderful and I had um, 12 weeks annual leave up my sleeve and I said, look, I want to take the whole 12 weeks uh, in one block. And I rang the guy um, who I'm great mates with now who was running the school and said, I really uh, oversold it, undersold it. I, I said, look, I've got 12 weeks leave and and I'll come up and work for free if you teach me how to shear sheep, shoe horses uh, and, and that sort of thing. And, and yeah, he he very quickly just said, yeah, Come on up. <laughs> so you got the bug from the from the one week Jackaroo school, and then you go and do twelve weeks of it, learn some of those skills again, mate. I I'm, I'm very jealous. If my life had taken a different path, if I go back, I definitely would do at least a little bit of that in my in my youth. I'm well and truly too old to, to sort of embark on that sort of stuff now. Um, let's let's go back though, because I want to take the other part of your story. What were you then? What were you doing before you, you embarked on this stuff? Because you're in the finance industry, right? Yeah. So I was just working, sort of in. I suppose middle management at a at a major um, finance house in Sydney, um, 
I didn't have harbour harbour views. I had a good view of the building next door, but look, you know, I was pretty ambitious, um, proactive. You know, I was eyes eyes and ears open and, and willing to have a go. So, in the early two thousands, things were really quite strong. Um, so. Uh, yeah, look, I skipped along quite quickly in my early years and I was grateful for the support I had um, there and I learned a lot uh, in that time. So, um, yeah, it was it was a good little chapter. That's fantastic. So, mate, these these come together pretty quickly career-wise, right? Because you've got this finance background, you've learned these skills, you kind of knocked around some of the financial markets, then you go bush. You spend 12 weeks shoeing horses, shearing sheep, learning some skills. Uh, you said you undersold or oversold yourself. What, what was the end of the, at the end of the 12 weeks? Was the bloke happy you'd uh, take you on for free or were you, were you more trouble than you were worth? What was, the, what, was the, what was the end result for all that? I think it was a bit of a transition. I mean, very early on, I was a, a duck out of water. You know, I, I, <laughs> I knew nothing. Um, but, but towards the end, you know, I, I'd, I mean, like I'd applied myself. So, you know, I really... Um, you know, I was I was quite competent by the end, um, and and certainly competent enough to then go and work on other places, um, which was the which was the whole objective. Right. So let's go then to that. We will get back to the business of commodities trading and what's happening out in the bush and, and on farms and stations around the country in a minute. Um, so so you do your twelve weeks. Uh, I assume at the end of that, do you go back to the office or do you kind of chuck it all in then? Or how, what 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 where do you, where do you go next and and how do you get to where you are now? So I did go back and I really thought, I suppose I picked up from the jackaroos that had come onto the school that um, a lot of people in their mid-20s had a gap year, especially the the English. And I thought, oh, geez, a gap year is not a bad idea, to be honest. So after my 12 weeks, I went back to my boss um, and and he was probably unsurprised. And um, But I did, I, I resigned from my, from my career and I said, I'm going to have a gap year. And um, so I grabbed all my stuff and came back to Tamworth and basically just started doing little odds and sods. I worked at the, the local sale yard, penning up cattle on a on a Sunday night for the sale, washing out trucks, um, all, all that sort of very basic labour. But I just wanted to be in the bush and 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 amongst it. Um, so I um I yeah, just I was purely thinking I'd take a gap year. And it was only as I got to know people around town and sort of make inroads into the community. Um, before long, it, it wasn't um, too long before I had an opportunity with one of the big four banks, and that was really um, as a as an assistant to an agribusiness manager. So some of the skills I'd developed over my career um, to to assist a, a bank manager with a portfolio of um, of farmers and. Um, and that was the real eye-opener because I got to go around and see the best and the worst of, of farming businesses. Um, but very quickly I saw that the ones that were, were good um, were, were really good, really good business people, um, really good entrepreneurs, good forward thinkers, um, good risk managers. And I thought to myself, wow, this, you know, not only do they – do they have this wonderful business around them, but they've got this lifestyle and, um, uh, you know, that goes along with it. So um, so that was really what whet the appetite for then me to go and buy my own place. Nice. And so that sounds like it was kind of the story, mate. You kind of, 
you didn't necessarily want to do it only for a career. You weren't necessarily going to be be a jackaroo for the rest of your life. But you liked the country life. You liked being you know, on the, on the farms, on the stations. But also, you kind of had that calling back to your finance career from the sound of it. You kind of, you know, you, you mucked out stables for a while, and then all of a sudden you went, you know, maybe you know this is okay, but I but I want to earn a quid doing what I'm good at, as well as having that that lifestyle, and that opportunity. Absolutely, and I've always liked, I've always enjoyed the the markets. You know, I, I suppose I'm one of those. Um, bit of sort of a financy geek, I suppose. You know, I, I enjoy looking at the the futures and the currency each morning and what markets did overnight and what what are, what are things trending here. So I always had that sort of there and and was always eager to, to continue with it. As always, said, you bought your own place. Uh, you're working for a bank in agribusiness. Mate, I am curious, if, if I'm speaking to someone in the bush now, is the bank manager your best friend, your worst enemy? I mean, as you say, uh, you know, you're there, you're there foreclosing on on bad farms, but you're also providing funding for for the guys that are still getting it done. How how are banks and bank managers seen in the bush? For you know, I guess it's hard, right? You got to be the angel and the devil at the same time because that's just the business. Um, does that make you popular? Do people just get it and understand it and kind of just they're you know kind of um, resigned to it, or how does that kind of play out? Honestly, mate, I, I think people would think the relationship between their bank manager um, really like a partner. I mean, you have to be careful with that, mate. And in, in small communities, it, you know, you do bump into people at the footy or at the at the picnic races. Um, the best businesses are the ones that are, have an open dialogue and are, and are open to to good feedback, favourable or unfavourable, but you've got to handle that and and move on the ones that probably bury their head in the sand you know that those are tougher scenarios but um yeah so i'd like to think of it more as a as a partner i mean i think most people respect people's professional position bank managers can can also help a lot of businesses Mate, okay, so let, let's let's finish this loop and then we'll get to to the kind of the meat of the, the conversation. Uh, you said you bought your own place. Uh, tell tell us what, what what is your what is your I was going to say day uh, when you when you're on the land, mate. You don't have a day. You have a week, and even then the kind of days blend with each other. I assume what what is what occupies your time seven days a week these days? I did buy my own place uh, about fifteen years ago, and not dissimilar to most people in their late twenties, early thirties. They're probably fairly risk. Um, open to risk. So so I naturally took the biggest bite I could. I bought I bought as much as I could that the bank would lend me, um, which ended up being a, a 500 acre parcel of land, you know, within half an hour out of, out of town. It's, um, I suppose, just what you'd call a, a fairly softly undulating sort of, it's got an element of flat and a little bit of uh, rise to it, but it's mostly um, cultivation. Naturally, I geared myself up to the max, so I couldn't afford a tractor, cattle, sheep. Um, so it actually took me down the path of of finding some share farmers. So for the first five years, I joined up with some similar age, um, two similar age fellas um, who had all the gear, all the expertise, and they were equally eager to go bigger. And so we ended into a five-year share farming arrangement to grow crops. Um which all sounded pretty good because they were going to come and do everything. Um, we were going to split the costs and and split the crop. The only problem with that was I had no idea how to sell rain. 
let's fast forward then. You, you, you do that, that five-year deal from the sound of it. That sounds like it kind of, you learn a few things along the way. Uh, where are you now? What are you, what are you doing? Uh, mate, so I'm actually uh, just sort of consulting at the moment. Um, I, I have been, uh, I suppose, trading for a couple of the main consumers. Um, so I was with one of the dairy uh, cooperatives for, for quite a long time, buying the grain and feed for, for their members. Um, and just recently I was working with a with a poultry consumer, um, so procuring gra- feed grain um, for their daily consumption. Mm. Nice. And and what about your what about your place? What are you what are you running now? Uh, so we're mostly cattle. So I finally sort of uh, paid the bank off and well uh, and and stocked myself up on some cattle. Um, and look, the the cattle market's been quite, you know, I suppose on a medium term's been quite good. We had the the drought, um, the millennial drought, sort of in eighteen nineteen, um, which you know um, w- was very tough on on a lot. But but coming out of that, you know, we've had some good seasons, good commodity prices, good production. So it's been a bit of a rising tide lifts all ships scenario for the last sort of three years, and we're just starting to come off the highs of that now and, and get back to a more you know equilibrium. Mate, um, let's let's get into some of that then. So, as I said, I you know I, I'm, I I've got a finance background, so have you. Um, I'm I'm not entirely convinced. So this this may be con- or just controversial. I'm not sure what your thoughts are. I'm not entirely convinced we need to be trading naked options in financial markets and kind of gambling on what might happen with this or that. Right, the share price might go up here, go down there. It, it that strikes me as somewhere between investing and and gambling, and frankly, not very close to investing. But all that said, whether you agree with it or not, feel free to give me your thoughts on that. The the market for agricultural futures and agricultural trading is a very different thing because it, it is a physical product being delivered. And yes, there's a, a layer of, of gambling and speculation and people are entitled to do that. But at the, the, the end of the day, it's a case of, as you said, <laughs> I'm growing some grain. I got to I got to get a market for it, right? And and to some degree, I want to know know what price I'm getting. Or if you're a a grain buyer, you're saying, well, I know I need this much grain, and I need to make sure it's going to be delivered. I need some certainty on my cost, so I'm going to enter into a a forward contract for that as well. It's the one area of derivatives trading where, and look, I'm not the arbiter of all things, but you know, it, where, where I uh, king of the world for a while, uh, it it makes perfect sense for that market to survive because of the realities of and the vagaries of of agricultural production. So let's let's get into that, mate. Can you just Maybe for our viewers who are listeners, sorry, who aren't as uh, particularly uh, aware of what happens out in the bush and, and the sort of commodities that are traded, what are some of the major uh, agricultural commodities that would be traded? Uh, give us a sense of the, the market for, for that kind of part of the industry. Well, if we just talk Australia, you know, Australia's market is is different to other markets around the, the world. Um we the Aussie market does have some futures contracts, but for the farmer per se, they largely stay out of those futures markets. So, in you know, in the Australian equivalent of futures, certainly you've got your your merchants, your big end of town that are exporting our grain around the world. You know, they're going to participate in those in those futures markets. But from a farmer perspective. They generally stay out of it um, and and just look at marketing the physical commodity itself. Okay, when it's available for sale, or are they forward selling them based on volumes? How, how does that work? 
Look, it's changed a lot over the last sort of 15 years. Uh, you know, I would have, look, on a forward basis, the really good, well-educated, um, well-skilled and and probably your larger-scale farms um, certainly would have forward sales in, in place, um, but they've got very good, robust sort of um, risk management strategies around that, so they've got good management of their crops and their and their forecasted production and if and if we start to see production um, disappearing through weather then they'll quickly get out of those forward sales and that's the key because yeah if you're short and and you don't have the production then things can get ugly very quickly but I, I would mate just as a back of the envelope I would have thought 70% of farmers, don't really dabble much in forward contracts. Okay. And just for the sake of our uh, listeners and, and frankly for me, if you're short volume, I assume you've then got to buy it on the spot market to make up the, the difference. And I imagine that's generally, particularly when things are short, almost by definition, an expensive thing because not, you're not the only one who's short. Everyone's short, right? So now you're chasing your tail and saying, I agreed to provide this much volume. I've got this much less 20%. I've got to buy that 20% on market, either literally or just make up, make the, the contract good by, by providing that, that offering. That's, I assume, the biggest risk, right? Correct. And and also in those sorts of environments, your capital is tight. So the, your ability to buy from from the lowest seller is limited. Normally you're only going to deal with who you've got your contract with. So you're you're essentially going to wash out with your with the merchant um, who's going to clip the ticket along the way as well. So they do get really ugly really quickly. Mate, um, I wonder if you can. So obviously, you, as you said, you, you you've grown wheat. You now you now working with cattle, uh, and I, I'm I'm curious as to what that looks like on a on, on a let's let's go with wheat. Uh, I assume it's an annual crop or semi annual crop. I'm not sure what the the wheat scenario is. Yeah, it's an annual it's an annual crop. Okay, so so tell me about tell me about without excruciating detail, but talk us through the the, the twelve months of the wheat crop, if if you wouldn't mind, just kind of give us a flavour of of what your life as a as a wheat farmer was. I know you're doing cattle now, but just we'll get to cattle in a second. What's what's the what's the wheat cycle like for a farmer? Uh, look, so the and so this one thing that's interesting. We talk about annual crops, but um, crops are made over many years, so it's all about how you manage, you know, uh, previous crops. Your summer fallow, so how you manage the weeds through the through the non-growing season, and and I suppose Australia is a very dry climate, so we want to hang on to that moisture as much as we can, and the nutrient that's in the ground. Um, then you got to put it in the ground, which costs a fair bit of money. Um, then you got to get through the growing season, get it harvested, and and deliver it to wherever you're going to sell it. So. Um, yeah, you're talking about decisions that that have occurred over 18, 24 months to produce that one crop. That's fascinating. And so for the farmer who's not engaging in futures contracts, are they just literally rocking up at the, I mean, not actually, but yeah, rock, rocking up at the merchant saying, hey, here, here's my here's my crop. Uh, how much can I get for it? And and, and paid at the, effectively at the farm gate or at the or at the merchant's front door when they, when it goes into the silo. Is that is that literally what's happening? Yeah. So so look, and it's changed a lot over the last fifteen years as well. So the investment and development of on-farm storage has grown exponentially um, over the last sort of ten years. I'd, I'd say um, prior to that, you would literally harvest the crop, pop it on a truck and send it into your local depot uh, and and 
what people were finding was that there was limited, you know, there was buyers, but limited buyers. So you weren't capturing the whole market and therefore not capturing the full value of, of that product. Um, so hence why a lot of people have invested heavily on farm and now, you know, and it, it's different around different parts of the country, but certainly for a northern New South Wales perspective, it you know, 30, 40, 50% of the production would be stored on farm. That wouldn't be surprising. And and stored on farm to give them greater access to a range of buyers or a range of a range of selling times so they're not, not try to sell into the glut? What's what's happening there? So time, um, sometimes quality needs to be managed as well. So your quality might be good but not great and you can turn it from an 8 out of 10 product into a 10 out of 10 product with a little bit extra work. Um, and so you just, yeah, you're just picking up those little premiums along the way. But the other thing is you want to open up open up your, your commodity to instead of three or four buyers, 15 to 20, you know, and let them all compete compete for for what you've produced. Let me just really tease that out, mate, because the extra, going from three to four to 15 to 20, is that because it's different times of the year or what, what you know, obviously, what, why aren't there 15 to 20 buyers at the time of harvest? Where do they come from? What gives you that, what gives you that optionality once you store it on farm? Yeah, well, I suppose, so the buyers want different things to what the sellers want. So at harvest, everybody's overwhelmed with, with grain that can't fit in silos. So your local feedlot's got enough for, for the cattle on feed that he's got at the time or your or your local dairy or poultry producer's got enough for the moment. Uh, but once all the dust settles at harvest, most buyers then sit down and start scratching out their gross margin calculations for quarter one, quarter two of the, of the following year. And that's when the nitty-gritty comes because they want to shore up supply. So... That's when they go. Well, you know what? I, you know, I like the grain. I'm happy to pay X, and they come to a, a, an agreement with the farmer to say, "Well, let me come and get it over a three months, six months, and and um, work together, work together, essentially." And so, to some degree, while we're saying that farmers aren't engaging in futures contracts per se, there is some element of that kind of business savviness around. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna put a forward contract in, but I am gonna keep. Some, some grain on farm on the assumptions, I don't know how, how reasonable or, or, or reliable that assumption is, but there is some, you know, strategizing around what they think they can sell and when and for what price, which I guess sometimes is wonderful. Maybe sometimes is over-egged. I think, gee, I should have sold it back then because prices were higher or because the, the customers didn't eventuate. There is, there is some element of risk, uh, both risk management by, by spreading the, the purchase, but also risk itself in that if you sold it on, on harvest day, you know what you're getting. Anything you keep on farm, you're literally saying, well, gee, I hope it's worth more at some point or I can make this worthwhile. Is there a risk there or is, or is the market relatively structured so you know that that's what's going to happen? The market is very structured, that's for sure. Um, look, I, one thing I might just say that, you know, um, and this has been quite pleasing for me to see uh, in my time, is the upskilling of of the farmer, um, and I mean this sincerely, but, you know, most decent-sized cockies these days We'll have an understanding of what Chicago futures are doing and what the what the currency is doing, and that'll form part of their sort of analysis of, of what they're doing on farm. Um, you know, you know, so 
Um, one of the things, and I've spent a lot of time over my career working with a lot of lot of farmers on how they can uh, market their grain to the to the best ability. And one of the things I talk to them a lot about is about understanding of cost of production, um, and that's kind of the, the starting point. You know, the market can be looking all wonderful overseas, but um, you know, without understanding your cost of production, it's very hard to know when to engage the market. Um, but if you know, I always say to farmers, you know, if you can make a target margin, then engage the market, regardless of what else is going yeah, on, because yeah, you're making yeah, money yeah. and you're going forward in your business. So, um, but yeah, look, that you know, the the farmers very. I mean, in modern technology, it's it's easy for us to to look at Chicago futures and to follow currency and to and to look at charts and see where market momentum's going. Um, but fundamental to all that, and I see it a lot, people can see market momentum, but they don't understand their cost of production and they don't know when to engage the market. Can we go to Catalog? That's obviously what you're doing now. Something that obviously is a very different market, or maybe it's not very different. I assume it is because we're dealing with largely live cattle, at least at some point of the process. Um, can you talk us through the, 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 the again, the cattle? Obviously, we're not talking 12 months here, but as you said, wheat's not really 12 months anyway. Um, as, as a cattle farmer, uh, what, is, what does that market cycle, farm cycle look like? Look, it's it's again, like as a, as a beef producer, um, you know, decisions that you make, like it takes a long time. So it's, um, it takes a long time for decisions to come to fruition. So it's not like you, um, I mean, there's there's elements to it where people can just step in and, and trade cattle on a short-term basis. But from a breeder perspective, you know, um, you, you, it starts off with you buying some cows, you join those cows, They've then got to produce a calf and then you've got to raise that calf to an age that it's marketable. So, you know, you really I want to be talking there just quickly. What's the what's the what's the kind of marketable age for, for cattle? Oh, look, you know, really you want to have a a, a a weaner calf at sort of eight months, ten months, um, twelve months ideally, you know, because they go on, you know, obviously they're little and then they sort of get on that exponential uh weight growth. So weight's everything, you know. You you want to get those kilos on those those animals. So, yeah, you're really looking at um, yeah, put it down as twelve months of age to to wean a calf and and get it to market. Um, but uh, yeah, you know, it's taken you two years to get to that point. Right, and then I guess we're talking sorry, about putting weight on. We're talking about pasture quality and additional feed and that kind of stuff. And I guess that's again where weather matters so much. Right, if you're growing a crop, it's literally whether the crop grows or not, or to what extent it grows, or the quality of the crop. It's not all that dissimilar when you're when you're raising cattle, right? Because you've got to either supplement the feed, you've got to hope the pasture itself is is enough. You rotate the rotate the cattle through, I assume, different paddocks. Now, talk us through, talk us a little bit about that in, in your current circumstance. Yeah, well, look, and just I suppose on summary, the the east coast of Australia is quite dry at the moment, so our market is behaving quite different to to global markets, and and it's because you know I mean obviously everyone ha- has had a couple of great seasons, most people are carrying a full complement of breeders, and as the season tightens, people have got to then sort of. Either either buy in feed to cover up the shortfall, or they've got to drop some numbers to to balance things out. So at the moment we've got um, we're just on the precipice of, of spring, so cows are calving, 
And if people have got too many, then they're forced to enter the market uh, earlier than they would ideally. Um, and and at the moment, we've certainly got a scenario, and we've had this probably for the last six months in Australia, but we've got a um, an oversupplied market. So so whilst prices aren't horrendous, um, they're certainly off their highs, you know, and, and cattle prices at the moment are back sort of 50% of where they were six to 12 months ago. Wow. So, I mean, th- those are big shifts too, right? We think about if, if you're working for a quid and the boss sends you a 50% reduction in your, in, your, in your pay, you're not particularly happy, but that's the life of the farmer. I guess the flip side is also true, right? You're not going to get a doubling of your pay tomorrow and maybe on, on, on the land you can you can get that sort of thing. Um, curious as to just, I'm, I, I found this fascinating, mate. I, maybe I'm just not cut out for, for what you do, but the particularly with cattle, the idea of trying to work out how many cattle, how good the pasture is, um, how much of that is art and how much is science? I mean, you look over, you look over a field. I imagine after fifteen years you've been doing it. Now you're you're pretty good at it. But I, I, you know, I, I think about if I, if I had to look over a farm and say how many cattle could that support based on the current weather conditions? I guess you look at the grass and the colour of it and try and make some sort of guesstimates. Is it is it art? Is it science? What was that process like? Ah, uh, look, there's a little bit of both. But mate, I I, I think certainly um, in today's day and age, and this is one of the beautiful things about the ag sector is there's a lot of support out there as well. So it's not like, um, you know, you're just out there on your own with no support. You know, a lot of a lot of farmers now have a, have agronomists or a lot of um, merchandisers that sell seed and fertiliser and chemicals will have an agronomy service. So you actually get somebody universally, university qualified to come out and, and give you some guidance on pasture and what your production and what your carrying capacity can be. Uh, Likewise, you know, your stock agent, and so this is, I suppose, back to the start of the conversation with the bank manager, you've got all these partners that need to support you um, and they obviously benefit from your business as well. But, um, yeah, there's a lot of skilled um, minds that that go into um, agriculture production. Yeah, nice. And, mate, let's just finish off the cattle conversation Um Obviously, you know beef cattle. So I assume you're selling live cattle, putting them on trucks off to the abattoir. Um, the, the 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 process there. Obviously, you you can't store. Well, I guess you could slaughter your own cattle and store it on farm, but you're probably not going to. Um, how how does that differ? The selling process there. Most farmers would still rely on on their local sale yards, although we have had some um, benefit, probably. Uh, sort of within the last sort of five to 10 years of some online sort of auctions. You know, there's a there's a business known as Auctions Plus, which has made massive inroads into uh, not dissimilar to the to the grain market. You know, cattle can go to the sale yards, grain can go to the local depot. Well, now we've got this online auctions market where you can sell your cattle ex farm, but you can put your cattle on on this online auction and and let Instead of one or two buyers, you know, a processor may be a big commercial feedlotter, but you can put it on and there might be some smaller, smaller tier feedlotters that, that could be interested in your, in your product. So, um, yeah, so most farmers would go through and, and draft their cattle up and into sort of various age and weight ranges and then try and box them up into lots and, and sell them on. 
I have to say, I was up in uh, up in Uluru only a, a month or two ago, and uh, and when I was up there on the on the local TV uh, network on Imparja, uh every every third or fourth ad uh, seemed to be a a sale, cattle sale, um, maybe bulls. I think I can't remember anyway. But it was it was just a again. It reminds me that you know we don't see that in the city, and, and it's important to have these conversations because this is actually what's going on. Obviously, it was the right time of year, and, and all the different sales that were being planned around Queensland, Western Queensland, Central Queensland, Northern Territory. Uh, that was all kind of being being advertised at the same time yeah yeah and look that that market you know that that central australia northern northern australia um, they've got to go when they can go you know so once the wet season comes along they can't get cattle to market so you've got to <laughs> make hay while the sun shines exactly hell of a hell of a category hell of a market uh, let me ask you quickly about about cattle we're seeing more businesses try to brand their beef um, not literally branding the cattle, but but you know putting a brand on the beef they're selling. Um, I think the Australian Agricultural Company, one of the biggest, if not the biggest, landholder, uh, doing that kind of thing. Wagyu, of course, Angus. I mean, the, these kind of either the brand branding that the type of of beef or the source of the beef seems to be a really big deal. I'm curious as to how you see that the premiumization or the the ability to either you know sell some of the stuff just through the you know general you know Woolies butcher you know meat on the in the packet out in the, in the paper versus the stuff that gets branded that way how how what was the future for that kind of value add for farmers i mean i think it, the future is quite strong and, and it's really led by the consumer you know so so the farmer whilst um then i suppose they're identifying the the desire or the need from the consumer to that that a, a portion there want to see traceability and and want to be um, understand where their where their food comes from. So you look, I think that's a wonderful opportunity to be honest. And and this is um, you know a lot of farmers are very passionate about what they produce. And I think I mentioned to you the other day, you know, a lot of us would do it for nothing. You know, we really enjoy being in the paddock and and looking after the animals and growing the good pastures. So we're proud of of what we produce. Um, and likewise, happy to brand the product, you know, and say, well, the, you know, the product did come from Tamworth or this came from, you know, a certain part of the country. So, um, yeah, I think that's a, I think that's a wonderful opportunity. And look, it helps, I suppose, you're always going to have your mass markets, but, um, but it also, you know, through that supply chain, there's, there's margin to be had. So for the savvy operator, they can capture some of that upside if they're prepared to do the extra steps. It's a good point. We're also seeing a lot of that direct from farm or, or, or kind of just, you know, bypassing a lot of that middleman type stuff. I know there's a, a mob called Our Cow, which I've been getting ads for recently, probably because I've been preparing for this for this podcast. Um, but, you know, that, that idea of, you know, buy direct from the farmer or the farmer's plural, you are cutting out the middleman, the farmer gets a few more bob, you kind of know where your, your meat's coming from. Uh, in theory, there's something there. I, I do, and I don't, this is not about Our Cow specifically, I do wonder how much of this is uh, a bit of, a bit of uh, you know, um, uh, perceived value add rather than real value add but either way as you say if the consumer wants it and there's a market there for it uh, I don't think anyone begrudges the farmer getting a few more a few more dollars per kilo for, for what they're selling yeah absolutely and look uh, you know I I'm not familiar with the with the um products that you mentioned but yeah look I mean if you know uh, sometimes it's also about going going back to the way it was done you know many years ago where yeah your cattle were taken to the local butcher and that's what was in the shop um so yeah I think yeah it's a great opportunity 
I know Harris Farmer selling single herd milk at the moment. So this ain't the same kind of idea of people who want that kind of, you know, traceability and local staff, and it makes a, it makes a huge difference. Um, a couple of quick questions before we get onto the, the commodities themselves and where we are and what, what to expect for, for the foreseeable future. You mentioned you've got a 500-acre place. I'm curious as to how you see the evolution of, of farming generally. Uh, we're seeing fewer smaller farmers, seeing more corporate farmers, larger land holdings. Like in business in general, the kind of scale idea, there's mergers and acquisitions, the big get bigger and the little guys get pushed out. I don't want to make that too romanticised or, or, or generic, but there is that sense, and I, I, I understand, if, again, tell me if I'm wrong, that there is that happening, that smaller guys are getting pushed out. I guess, firstly, how, how does 500 acres compare? So I want to hear your experience, but also what is happening more broadly on the land when it comes to that kind of stuff? Because there's one part about saying support the local farmer the other thing is when the local farmer simply becomes the local arm of, of the multinational conglomerate then you look at Woolies and you know, I'm not going to buy from Woolies they're, they're, a, they're a, you know, a big business I'll buy from the farmer and say well that's kind of as big as Woolies is these days type stuff what, what, where's, where's that sitting in terms of how farming is, is evolving and, and the size of land holdings and the number of small farmers that are around I suppose from a, um, my perspective 500 acres Scott it's really a postage stamp uh, equivalent so it's at best and look, can easily be managed, can easily be managed on a weekend, you know. So it's not, um, you know, I'm not burning and driving around in a tractor all night trying to get things done. You know, it's e- easily accommodated. But look, you're right. Um, the, the, I suppose on a longer term generational trend, you are definitely seeing that decline from in farming families. Uh, I mean, look, there's there's elements to everything. So there's a lot of very successful. Um, farming families that are expanding and and almost corporatizing within themselves. You know, they're still the family, but they're running their business more of a corporate um, style. We saw it in the early 2000s where a lot of corporates came in and then got out. So it is part of a bit of it there. But the longer term trend is that certainly we're probably seeing less farming families in in the market and and more, um, more corporates there. But look, I think Part of it is, um, you know, you don't know what you don't know. And, I, and again, I've, I was very fortunate to just stumble across this. You know, I mean, I, as a kid, grew up in Sydney, always loved the Easter show um, and all that. But, yeah, so we've got, a, you know, opportunities to get kids into um, into agriculture and just experience it, you know, and, you know, whet the appetite and they can take it from there. I know I... Um, my in-laws are, are wool growers in in WA, and and I um I took my eldest on a um two-week boys shearing trip a couple of years ago, and just you know just hours on a quad bike, you know it's it's not only is it um yeah it was good fun, but you get that great time with your with your children or your siblings or your or, you know your, or your folks, and yeah it's a, it's a wonderful experience. That's awesome, mate. Yeah, I, I am extremely envious, as you can probably tell. I also do wonder, though, mate, if I walked in and walk, walk through the gate of a 500-acre farm that's now it's yours, what are you going to do? I'm like, I've got not the first clue. I'm glad. <laughs> I, I'm probably better doing this job than that job, but I'm glad you're there doing it. And I'm glad you're uh, you're enjoying it. Hey, mate, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll finish up in a sec. Just give us a sense, if you would, of you talk about wheat and, and cattle being the, the largest market, so we'll stick with those. Um, you talked a little bit about cattle prices and what's happening there. Um, I think we know, we, we believe that, that wheat prices are bit all over the place largely because of the war in ukraine and other things um give, give a sense of where 
prices are at, what farmers are, not, sorry, not dollars and cents, but what they're getting for, for these uh, these commodities, but also how you kind of see it happening and changing over the next 12 and 24 months. Yeah, well, look, so just I suppose the one big thing to bear in mind is Australia is a large producer and so we, we are heavily reliant on export markets. So, um, yeah, we, we, you know, we, we need the world to consume what we produce. So I suppose largely just on a, on a wheat perspective, um, and again, around the country, the crops are very variable, but for the major part, southern New South Wales, Victoria, South Australia, WA, they're probably experiencing an average, maybe a slightly above average sort of production outlook. Um, price itself is, is, is okay, but they're going to, I suppose, for a, a business to go well um, at the moment, they will need high yields or, you know, they want to maximise that product production out of the farm, out of the paddock. Um, so, look, you know, there's a lot of different things happening in global markets, but at the moment I wouldn't say the, the Australian uh, agricultural producers making a fistful. You know, we have seen better times. It's certainly not the worst that we've we've seen, and and I suppose that's something to just bear in mind. Is things can can get a little worse from here, um, so it, you need to have that in in mind. But um, yeah, look, I mean, you know, we're, our wheat prices are tracking okay. You know, some farmers are going to engage the market at harvest. There's probably going to be some upside opportunities into 2024. Um, and and similarly with our with our beef, you know, I, I I spend a lot of time crunching numbers on on cattle. We are heavily discounted to the global market at the moment, and that's largely due to the the Aussie producers largely fully stocked. Um, and then we've got this sort of El Nino weather pattern just on the horizon, so it hasn't happened yet, but people are starting to. Just just drop some numbers back, uh, and so we're we're quite oversupplied at the moment, which is um, which is keeping prices subdued. Which, as a uh, supermarket consumer, I'm very happy about. But for you guys, I hope you get a bit a bit more in the in the future than you're getting now, because it's uh, it is a double edged sword, and I think that's that's always the case. Uh, reconnecting, I think, the consumption with the origin of, of our food, as you've kind of mentioned before, is is a really really important thing. That's what I've, I've tried to do here, mate. Last question before we get onto onto my, our favourite questions. Um, Tell me about sustainability. It's obviously a huge deal for consumers. It's a huge deal for farmers. And there is, you know, there are very different takes on what this looks like. Uh, you know, the farmers will say generally, well, look, it's our land, it's our generational asset, we want to look after it. On the other hand, we have people saying, well, you're pulling too much water out of the rivers and the topsoil is blowing away and salinity is rising. You've, you've kind of got, and both things seem to almost be true at the same time. And I, I, I'm by no means an expert, nor am I going to try and take a side on this one, but I am curious on your take. You're, you're a pretty um, straight up and down kind of bloke. Just your your thoughts about how sustainability is being managed, what needs to happen, is happening, isn't happening. Um, what, what does sustainability look like for Australian agriculture, both as a business, but also environmentally? Look, it's a great question. Uh, and it's something that, you know, I suppose on the path, to um to you know on the road we're all traveling we're, we're there's still a long way to go um so there's still a lot of knowledge to be um learnt as far as you know soil carbon and, and those sorts of things but you're right in in that I suppose um the the better end of the farmers do understand that 
you know, the decisions they make today will impact them in three, four, five years' time. So, so there is a there is a I would say on average a, a long term view, um, and yeah, but but all the knowledge is not known, and and this is the hard part. So. Um, you know, in, in five years' time, we can look back and go, well, we probably could have done things better, but we know that now and 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 we're all passionate environment people. We understand that what's here today, we want here again for tomorrow. I hope those things all come true for you. So I mean, how can we follow you? You are, you're active on Twitter, I know. Mate, I'm fairly active on Twitter, which for me is like the... Uh, the front bar of the uh, social media world, you know, which I love because <laughs> you get to have Pretty this much. very good, you know, I mean, it's all fairly light, but you get this open chatter, you know, that that you can randomly have at a country music festival when you bump into somebody that you <laughs> otherwise wouldn't have bumped <laughs> into. Um, so, right. yeah, so certainly on Twitter, um, uh, Simon McDougall and, uh, yeah, LinkedIn, et cetera. Beautiful. Simon, I really enjoyed this chat. Thank you for opening our eyes and sharing a bit of what's going on uh, in the bush and on the land. It's a really, really important conversation. Thank you for joining me for The Good Oil. My pleasure, mate. And look, thanks for reaching out and I've thoroughly enjoyed it. This podcast is hosted by me, Scott Phillips, produced by Ed Gooden and imaged by Link Kelly. Link Kelly.